Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week, we have a special guest, and it's Riaz Virani. Did I get anywhere close on your name, man? You actually got it perfect. That's amazing. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? And Yeah. So my name is Riaz Varani. I've been a Rails developer now for about eight years. Um, although, of course, like every Rails developer, I do a lot of front end as well. I currently am freelance, but most recently I was CTO of a CTO of a company called Load Up Technologies based out of Atlanta. And right now I'm kind of working on another company, but it's sort of in self mode, so I can't talk about it too much. Gotcha. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. So Atlanta, so are you and Dave neighbors? That's how we met. Dave and I, Dave used to come to the Atlanta Ruby meetup, which is, I ran that for, for many years. I actually am now in Toronto. I moved up about a year ago, but yeah. since COVID, I've still been able to attend all the meetups, a ton of the meetups, not all of them, missed some of them. And yeah, it's sort of been interesting to keep in touch with that community, even though I'm not in Atlanta anymore. Gotcha. Well, we brought you on today. We're going to talk about five tips for success, how to thrive at your first dev job. I know we're going to have a few people that are going to be very interested in this. Do you want to kind of explain where this idea came from? Yeah. I mean, after having done this for a good bit of time and also having been a junior developer at one point in 2014 myself, I realized there was so much emphasis for... Uh, new developers to kind of get their first job. And that can be a pretty big challenge if, if you're in that world. I mean, I'm sure a ton of your listeners can sort of sympathize. That being said, once you get that first job, I realize we we don't really talk to people or or think about how do we make sure that going from sort of zero, and you just get that job and you're super excited to having a successful first year. Because if you can get over the one-year hump, you're, you're probably going to be okay. And a lot of times, they're just mistakes that people can make. So I kind of looked at the things I'd learned and put together sort of five approaches, mentalities, tips that can really help you out to, to essentially successfully navigate that first year and, and be a full-time dev. Nice. Yeah, I've, I've been doing uh, coaching calls on Wednesdays at noon Mountain Time. And I've had people get on... Some of the questions are about podcasting and things like that. But a lot of the questions are actually about this kind of thing. And you know, I'm, I'm really curious to see where you take some of this because yeah, a lot of times, like you said, people focus on getting that job. And then it's... Oh, okay. mm -hmm. well, what do I do now? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, we'll just kind of go through them. There's obviously five to kind of make it a, a nice, simple number. And I'll kind of explain a few of them. And if you guys want, I'd love to just kind of get everyone's everyone's thoughts if you want to go, go that way. Yeah, I'm going to pause for just a second. We have a few more panelists on the call. We're switching recording systems. So my theory is, is they were on the other system. Gotcha. So I'm just going to sound off and they can say hi and then we'll uh, roll back into this. But Luke, Luke stutters. One, two. That's good. I, I, I was on Riverside yeah. and I got totally distracted by CSV pirates. Uh -huh. <laughs> we, can, we can discuss it later. Yeah. All right. John Epperson. Hello, everybody. And Valentino Stoll. Hey there. All right. Well, we are rolling tape, so uh, we're going to dive back into it. 
So yeah, did you want to just go after that first point? Oh, I didn't realize my video was on. Yeah, so let's go into the very, very first tip. So the first tip I wrote was called Ask and You Shall Receive. And so the the gist of the point is that I've often seen junior developers, because people are afraid of their imposter syndrome, they're afraid of looking like they, they're not supposed to be there, they simply just don't ask for help. Like they, they're given a task, given a bug or something, they're thrashing on it. They're kind of beyond the point at which they're making progress in terms of figuring out what's going on. And then they still, they think it's some how like a rite of passage to spend several more days getting nowhere before they say, hey, I need help. But then the second part of it that I kind of put in the article was, well, you have to ask intelligently, right? And so you can't just say, I don't know how to do this, like whatever, I'm take it away from me, right? And and kind of throw up your hands. You know, if you think about like how would you want how is your manager seeing this problem and how can you help them? So an example might be you're stuck on this problem, you're joining your morning stand-up and you say, Hey, I'm I'm working on X, I'm a little bit lost. I'm still maybe try Y, but if I don't make any progress by this afternoon, can I grab one of you for a rubber ducking session to explain what I have tried? And maybe you can just kind of give me some insight of the next thing to try. And that to me works out really well because as a manager, it's like you haven't thrown your hands up in the air. You've sort of identified the problem, identified the risk, you've given me a timeline that you're gonna work on it solo. And then you've identified the next incremental bit of help you need, uh, which might just be someone pointing out, oh, you need to go learn about X or go look at Y and then kind of dig at it yourself. And what I've seen often is people are kind of in the binary world of, you know, I have to prove myself. I should never ask for help and just sort of thrash on it on their own. Or it's, well, this is too hard for me. I don't know how to do this. And then they essentially just try to like essentially offload it to somebody else and throw their hands up in the air. And they're not making progress either way because they're not actually learning how to solve the problem. And so it's sort of like, how do you ask for help is sort of the gist of the question. And I think learning how and when to ask for help and how to involve your team in a progressive manner versus sort of going to those extremes is a really important skill that I think you learn naturally as you get more experience, but it's kind of new to you when you're when you're pretty junior. So that's kind of the thought. But yeah, I'd love to kind of get a sense of like what your guys' perspective is. That something you guys have also seen with different developers? Do you do you guys agree? I think what I've experienced for newer developers is that there might be such a intimidation factor to programming or the problem at hand that they never even try the why step. They never try anything. It's just overwhelming and they just go and reach for help. And usually the first question I would ask is, well, what have you tried so far? You know, what direction have you thought about? What are some of your processes? Have you sketched up any kind of database diagram on how you want to model this? Have you written any kind of like pseudocode to like help you out? Like just to walk through the steps that you need. And the answer is no. They've just said, well, I, I just I don't know what to do. So those are the situations that really frustrate me the most <laughs> as a more senior developer because I want them to learn. And I think the best way to do that sometimes is to have someone help you out. But you really have to kind of figure out what what are the possible solutions? They don't even have to be good solutions, but just to show that you have given some kind of thought to the problem and your approach to solution. Yeah, I think there's something to that. Like, I, you know, one of the things is I, I think a lot of times people don't try uh, anything because they think, well, 
I'm just going to be trying it wrong. Right. And, and there has to be some allowance of like, well, you're new, like you need to be okay getting it wrong. Like you need to be okay trying something that makes no sense. Like you're, you're trying to solve this cores error and you don't know what it is. I mean, you can Google stuff and you can say, well, maybe I think it's that like, I didn't turn this, you know, start the server correctly. It's probably not it. It's the code, but like, it's okay. Try that, write it down. And then when you go to someone else and say for help, like, Hey, this is a really unknown area for me. But at the same time, I've looked at X, Y, Z and be okay with those being totally off base, right? Like it's okay to, you have to kind of swallow a little bit of your fear of looking stupid and like, well, that has nothing to do with this problem, right? That's okay. I think on the flip side, the tip two will come to It's like, we also have to, as more senior people, while be really, really cautious of like the times where like people have these imposter syndromes and we don't want to make them feel bad about making a mistake, right? Like we want to encourage them to try things, make mistakes. And as you were saying, Dave, like keep trying stuff before they come to you versus thinking like, no, no, the only right ways to to know the right answer up front or to have researched the perfect answer before you ask for someone. Just the, the important thing is that you're experimenting and learning and you you've come with a like having put in your do your effort before you ask for help. Yeah. And usually I kind of base it on three factors. If for a particular job, is that person qualified? And the answer is yes, because they got hired. They were already, you know, hired onto the team. So, you know, they tick off that mark. And then are they able? Are they mentally able to comprehend the work and do the work? And in most cases, I think if they're qualified, then they are also able to do the work. So now we tick that box. But when someone comes to me, and this is probably the more important part, is is this person willing? Is this person willing to look through the problem to try to come up with a set of different solutions? You know, we're all developers by trade here. And one of the nicest tools that we have as developers is Git. If the direction you are going down is just completely wrong, just Git stash everything or Git reset head and get back to a fresh base application. And I don't see a lot of... Uh, juniors kind of trying that out. And that's something that I always recommend. Like, look, just get your branch to a stable point where, you know, it's updated with the origin and then just try stuff out. Don't commit it yet. You know, just try stuff out. And then if it's the wrong direction, if you found the fallacies in that direction, then just stash everything and then try something else. You know, there's so much learning that can happen from making mistakes. And I think a lot of times, you know, in the past corporate world, mistakes are seen as something like you cannot make mistakes. And I think that that's a wrong way of thinking because there's so much learning that happens in making mistakes. Even when I'm doing a episode prep for Drift and Ruby, if it's a more complicated subject, I'll usually restart that project five or six times before I get it to a point where I'm like, this is a presentable, logical flow of information to share with the community. It's not like I just am winging it the whole time and just coming up with everything on the spot. I have a template application already prepared. And that did not just happen by accident. It took a lot of prep work and it took a lot of revisions and change in directions. I don't believe you. I think you just always make the right call. 
No, I, I winged these episodes on Ruby Rose. <laughs> I don't wing those uh, Ruby Rose. <laughs> uh, I see. Should I do want the second class effort. He gives the first class effort for drifting Ruby. That's, that's right. <laughs> I was. I've been thinking a little bit just hearing you talk. Do I not? Do I take away opportunities for my coworkers to struggle? Because a lot of times I just want to get crap done, and so I'll just get on and show them how I do it. I guess because everything to me that comes with a, a a balance, right? Like I I think it's a really good idea to let someone struggle, but it's sort of how much do you let them struggle, right? So that's kind of like why in my example I I said a really good way to think about that for me is always time boxing, which is like I'm going to give you a thing, I'm going to point out like like I'm adding you asking you to add a page with this like list of things that have to be searched and sorted. We have other pages where we have APIs for that, where we built the UI for that, and I'll point out well we want to make it look kind of like this, right? Go do your thing. But if it's two days later and you're you're just kind of thrashing that's kind of where you have that sort of progressive increase in support being like okay well now let me like tell me what you're trying tell me what you're doing show me the code you're working on what you've gotten so far and let me course correct you and get you to the next incremental thing even though I'm guiding you sort of to the way I want you to do it right and in the end you might be halfway the way I do it and halfway not but like that'll that'll lead to the next time you need them to do something, they're probably going to be have, have much more confidence, have the ability to kind of think for themselves. Versus, I think it is important for us as senior developers to like not take away too many opportunities because otherwise they're not going to grow as fast, and we're not going to get the the sort of uh, value next time of them having that additional skill. Mm-hmm. But I, I agree, there's a balance there, and I think you're right. If you, there may be a bad idea to give someone who's really new something that's super time sensitive as well, right? Because then you have that pressure of like, well, I got to get this done because I got to make the sprint or whatever, and 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 therefore, I might just need to intervene and help you out. I think another smart thing is to, to give things to junior developers that have a little less time sensitivity so they also don't feel that pressure because uh, I don't think it's generally very helpful in most circumstances. Gotcha. So, the guy I'm talking about is not a junior, but it still applies. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually wanted to throw in here because uh, so I've long time been like a huge advocate of like, you need to be empathic to your fellow developers, junior or not. But I've also been in cases where just like Dave, I've been burned by somebody more or less like yesterday, they had a problem. And today they have the exact same problem. And we talked about it yesterday. And they didn't even try anything between yesterday and today. And then we talk about it again today. And they still don't try anything between today and tomorrow. Right? Like, and, and, and I had to spend some time. I was like, okay, so what is it? What's the difference between the person that I really think is not doing their job and somebody that's just struggling. And the thing that I came to is like, I actually don't care if on day one, you are freaking out and thrashing all over the place. That doesn't matter. Day one, who cares? The The thing that matters to me is is more or less what I just described. Like if I talk to you about it, and like we go away and a day has happened and like you're like making no progress if you're not trying something that we talked about yesterday like we like we directly coached and we created a goal together and and you freaked out that's that's the sign to me i think that like something's wrong here more or less and that's when i start to freak out so like a preface i think to sort of these tips is that like you are the kind of person who really wants to do a good job right so like if you're if if you're if you met with someone and they gave you some advice and they you're stuck and you don't even try the thing they're telling you that's sort of like i think we all have coworkers that can have like this it's like they're just not going to listen they're just not going to really do anything and there's sort of really there's really no tip you can give them right because they're like the first tip is pretty obvious like hey like listen and try what try that out at the very least right and there's uh, a gem for that 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it's sort of like, you can't help people who don't want to help themselves, but on the flip side, you can try to help people who are actively trying and, and therefore there's a lot of emotion and learning and whatever. How do you navigate that for someone who's really, really aggressively trying to get better? And, and that's really where like we can, we can kind of do some damage in terms of improving their chances of success. But I totally agree with you. Like there's no helping everyone because there's just some people who, you know, are not, you know, either don't have the, usually that's not even a technical thing. That's more of a personality thing, right? And sort of a drive, work ethic, all those kinds of things. And you just can't really help in those circumstances. And that's, I don't know yes. if that's even more or less prevalent in, in based on the experience of the developer, right? I think that just occurs like, I mean, not going to ever name names, but like I've met people with 20 years of experience and I'm like, how did you do this for 20 years? Like you, you, you have, you're really, really slow in writing really bad code. Um, and it just is people have different perspectives and different abilities to get the job done. So, yeah. Yeah. I um, think really what I was more or less trying to go after there was just that, like, I think there's a difference, right? Between that thrashing on day one and, and the continuous yeah. thrashing. It was really mm-hmm. all I was getting at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John, in your situation, it's tough to tell sometimes, but you have to figure out, is this person just not willing to do the work or learn? Or are they not able to do the work or learn? And depending on what the answer to that is, definitely is not a single solution. You go down two different paths there in how you deal with that. If they're just not able to learn, that's just one problem. Maybe you can find a different direction to help out on the team instead of maybe working on time critical stuff or whatever. But if they're not willing, then that's a whole different people problem that you have there. Yeah, I was kind of yeah. separating this problem from the ones that we were talking about. Like this is a unmotivated to work, at least at this particular job, right? Kind of yep. issue more more than anything, which is more of a, like you said, a people problem than it is anything else. Yeah, but I think it's fair to assume that the person listening to this episode is a new developer who is interested in advancing in their career and making a good impression in their job. And so I think the lesson from this really is be genuine in your desire to learn and take seriously the advice you get so that because I think we've all been there where, yeah, you give somebody some advice and you see plenty of evidence that whatever you told them is going to work out and then they completely ignore you, like you said, and it's either because they don't care or they don't, they, they just want an event or who knows what. But in this case, if you want your coworkers to continually be interested in helping you grow, then you have to take it seriously. Definitely. I think I just wanted to emphasize the part that I cared about was, I think it's okay to be confused and and not know what to do on day one. That's perfectly okay and, and normal sometimes. Um, it's what you do between that and day two, I think that, that really yeah matters. Yeah. Cool. Do we want to try tip two? I just want, I wanted to add a comment on to that. I think it, for, for many people just starting out, it's very intimidating, right? If you join, especially if you join a company that has a lot of you know, talented people on it, which, you know, nowadays is becoming more and more frequent as the jobs for Ruby, especially are drying up for more senior people that are, you know, either have either moved on or there's just not enough of them. Um, But there's, it's definitely very intimidating to start fresh, right? Like it's easier to forget what that's like. And, and almost it can be crippling even to ask for help, right? As you're starting new, 
especially for somebody who is just introduced to all these new tools, like maybe they're familiar with how Rails works, you know, how XYZ works. They're familiar enough with Git, but they don't have the the mindset to be able to do some more advanced things that maybe, okay, to use stashing, stashing some changes and checking out a new branch or XYZ could be a relatively trivial, trivial task. Uh, but for somebody just getting started, maybe it's not so easy. Uh, I feel like what's kind of missing in a lot of, you know, the onboarding process for juniors it is like attention, right? Like pairing while is not possible everywhere is huge help in reducing the necessity for somebody to even ask to start with, right? Like you, you almost want to make the rest of the team feel more approachable by not requiring somebody to ask, even have to ask for help, right? Like if you can create some sort of schedule or something like that, where you're checking in and encourage changes to be pushed frequently. I feel like there's ways to get around even of encouraging people to ask for help more frequently. I would totally yeah. concur with that. Like, I, I think, you know, the way I wrote the the sort of article, it was, well, you know, there's things you can't control. So if your team doesn't really do pairing, I mean, you, you know, you're probably not gonna be able to come in and say mandate that. But if that's a thing that your team does do, like, I would say that even if your team doesn't do it, I would say most teams, if they not want to, don't want to have that as a practice, would really benefit from taking new team members because they're usually are like, there's a, a thousand implicit ways of doing things that kind of get embedded in the in an engineering culture. And you can't pick those up unless you kind of are working alongside somebody. So maybe not even like a practice of giving new developers or just new engineers onto a team their own tickets, but essentially just have them pair and, and sort of navigate at the very least alongside an existing developer that's sort of solving problems in the code base. Because you're right, you get that confidence, you get to see, oh, here's how they... like. You're not going to submit a PR and people are like, well, that just violates all of our different engineering principles and then all of our rules and get thrashed all over. And, and so yeah, if you feel comfortable asking for that, I think it's a fantastic way for your first you know month at least, right? To ask for a lot of pairing sessions. One thing that I'm going to add, or two things I want to add real quick. One is, is just that a lot of times it's not even the engineering practices, right? It's the domain knowledge. Hey, mm -hmm. we're working on a financial system. So you need to understand all the regulations around what we do mm -hmm. and all of the lingo that we use around what we do and all these other things that have nothing to do with programming, but you're not going to be able to effectively communicate with a product team unless you know them, right? And so some of that's going to get picked up too. And I think a lot of times we kind of gloss over that just because they're new with the technology too. And we know that they're going to have that learning curve. And so just keep that in mind. The other thing is, is yeah, we kind of talked about asking too early or asking without at least trying. But yeah, the flip side is, and Valentino kind of headed down this road a little bit, is don't take too long to ask either, right? So put in a reasonable effort and then ask because it's frustrating. Yeah. If you just think I'm the font of all freebies, but it's, it's also frustrating if I'm assuming you're going to get something done within a reasonable amount of time. And if I've been doing this for 20 years longer than you, a reasonable amount of time might be three or four times as long as it would take me. Right. But if you've been spinning your wheels the whole time, and then when I come to you and say, all right, I'm ready to integrate and you haven't delivered anything, I'm going to be frustrated. And I'd rather have you ask me, earlier so that we can make sure that you're making progress. The other thing is, it's really frustrating to sit there and spin your wheels that long. So just make sure that, yeah, don't wait too long, 
But yeah, make the, make the reasonable effort, show that you're willing to learn, and it'll get you a long, long way. Yeah, I, I think it's a great point. I think maybe even mutually setting those time boundaries of saying, I'm going to keep working on this. And if I thrash for like, it's it's Monday, if on Wednesday, I'm still thrashing, let's have a chat, you know, and just set that ahead of time at the very onset and, and set that between both like the senior person, and the junior person versus kind of making it this implicit thing can sometimes also really help just being really transparent. Yeah. yeah that's one thing I like about draft PRs from GitHub is that uh, you could just throw up your changes and the earlier you can get anything that you're working on in front of somebody else that says speaks a lot more than oh i'm stuck on something you know can somebody t- give, guide me on a direction when you could just paste a link and somebody can look at the, the direction you're heading down just at a glance we probably have to move on to number two but oh go ahead <laughs> yeah just one quick note on the flip side for the senior person helping out the junior just a piece of advice that i've had to take to heart don't set the expectations that you have for yourself on the person that you're trying to mentor. The expectations that you have for yourself, you can set at whatever level you want, but there are different expectation levels that need to be set for a junior developer. They don't have to have perfect code or linting or anything, you know, the first time around. They're still learning. So you shouldn't hold them to what you hold yourself to. Well, that's definitely not how I would have done it. Well, you're just a jerk, Chuck. I'm just kidding. I practice every day in the mirror. <laughs> just ask my kids. All right, let's All right. let's do number two. All right, so we've definitely automatically kind of segued into a bit of number two. So this might be a shorter discussion. And, and this one's kind of written from two perspectives. So from the perspective of the junior developer, avoid sort of your paralysis. The, the tip is right now, worry later, uh, which is that you're just going to have a lot of uncertainties to whether you're writing code well at the very start. And you're going to get some PRs that are really heavily marked up. And you need to have essentially the, the sort of implicit amount of kind of courage or recognize that this is going to be the case and be okay with getting imperfect code out there versus just being in, in paralysis the whole time and or just throwing up your hands and asking for help. On the other side, for the more senior people, and we talked a bunch about this already, you know, your empathy matters. Uh, the scenario given in the articles, junior developer is really proud, actually gets a feature done, throws up a PR, and it gets like just read commented to hell from the senior developer who's just getting through their day and trying to review this PR and move on to the next thing. And now they have a huge crisis of confidence uh, that could have been alleviated by the senior developer just adding another quick note. And they're being like, hey, I know this is a lot. Uh, that's expected. You're learning and you've made a ton of progress. If you have any questions about these comments, I'm happy to help. Like just something like that can go a tremendous amount to kind of alleviate that sort of internal fear and keep people going. But a little bit of the tip is like, try hard, but do, do not let it stall your progress, right? Like it's it's actually a bit more important when you're early on to, to keep moving and, and to not thrash heavily and err on a little bit on the side of that versus being like terrified you're gonna, you know, you're gonna get another PR that gets marked up again, right? And that's just gonna be the case. You're new, you're just gonna make a ton of mistakes. You just have to kind of live with that and you're gonna get better. Work really hard. Don't throw out shit intentionally, but you're just even if you work your hardest, it's very likely it's gonna get marked up pretty heavily. So be okay with that and learn from it. Um, and that's so the tip is right now, worry later. Right as in right, like to write down worry later. I got a I got a question for you, Riaz. And this yeah. is a, a change I've seen in the industry as companies for internal projects tend to copy the way that open source is done, mainly due to the kind of Git model. Back in the day, if somebody had written some code and it worked, then it went in. And if a senior or other engineer wanted to, to redo it, it was on them to redo it. 
I don't know if you ever worked at a place like that, but that certainly was prevalent in the UK, where like management, as far as management was concerned, code quality was nothing. And if it worked, it went in. If you wanted to rewrite it, you do that. And now we seem to have gone to the other extreme, where if you even have one person who, as you say in your team, is doing drive-by code reviews, then that person can basically logjam an enormous project by spraying enormous code-style comments over otherwise not great, I'm not talking about great code, but okay okay code. So do you, do you think that the way we're doing it now is the best way or even a better way than code used to be written, say, five, 10 years ago? I, I guess everyone has a perspective on this. Here's what I've actually found happens, right? Like we all we all do this code review process, but here's what's secretly happening in everyone's mind behind the scenes. We all know who on our team generally just rubber stamps the code, right? They may skim it, but they generally aren't that picky. And then there's the person who redlines everything essentially like a lawyer, right? And how many times, and I, I, I've generally not done this intentionally, but I do it subconsciously, which is, oh, hey, can I just send you know a quick thing in Slack? Can you take a quick look at my PR to the person? Because of course, if I wrote it, I think it's fine, right? And then there's definitely some circumstances where I know I'm doing something a bit off kilter and I want the you know, other person. So like essentially selectively picking who's doing your review. So you kind of get both worlds, right? Like I don't think it's gone away because there's like in a sufficiently sized team, there is always someone willing to just sort of like approve and let through. And there's always someone who's going to mark it up. And you can kind of like selectively do that. Like it's it's kind of one of those things where it's like, it's not how we write. The, you know, we not, we no one will officially say this. It's sort of like the underlying secret behind in everyone's mind, right? Of like how things really work, you know? Because because of course, you, you know, it's like the, the number one rule of fight clubs, you don't talk about it kind of thing. Oh, developing That's- secrets. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I've seen it actually work out. And I've generally historically found it really, really hard to have code review practices that are consistently good across my teams. I've seen it... like Because of this, I've seen it work inconsistently well. But I'd be curious to see other people's thoughts on this too, if you've had the same experience as I have. Yeah. I think a point to Luke's frustration and issue. I think as someone who is getting my code review reviewed, I'd be really annoyed if it was all marked up with styling suggestions and stuff, because that's what your linter is for. And I've been in a situation where the guy with the rubber stamp refused to implement a linter either in the CICD or just locally within the project so the developer can run it. And instead, there were a lot of these unknown and unmet expectations that happen during code review because this person would have certain styling that just really triggered them when they saw violated. So that that's what would annoy me is if you have these certain kind of style guidelines and unless if you have a linter and you ask the developers to run the linter on the bit of code that they have created before the PR then you need to keep those red lines out of that PR comment because they don't belong there. A code review, in my opinion, is not for style guidelines and those kind of checks. It's for the quality of code, the logic that's going into it. I mean, I know that we talked about it last week, but this is what RuboCop is for. You can replace Redline Guy with RuboCop and, and, and get some success there. Or at least what you can do is, you know, whether you have a strict or a loose RuboCop, you can just put RuboCop in and then tell Redline guy that he's not allowed to do that anymore. And 
basically, if he wants to talk about style, like he needs to argue that it's supposed to go in the RuboCop config or whatever. Um, you know, and that should be a yeah. separate PR. <laughs> Part of me makes me agree with Jeremy Evans on styling <laughs> linters in a hateful way. More in that it's almost a behavioral thing with people's issues with styling, right? Like it's less about the code looking a certain way and more about somebody thinking it should look a different way. And I, I think maybe what's there's something missing in the way that code reviews happen where people need to think differently about what is happening. You know, more focused on the changes being made than how they've been implemented in a specific way. I mean, especially with Ruby specifically, right? There's a million ways to do the same thing. And it, <laughs> we're getting to the point of cheap cheapness of resources where a micro-optimization in doing it one way over another is only the tiniest bit more optimal one way or the other, where it almost doesn't matter because resources are so cheap at this point. Like Especially if you're in a larger organization, whether or not an array of 50 things can be sorted faster by changing the code around. Is that important to the, what you're trying to implement? And I think a lot having these linters in place kind of it sidelines the fundamental issue in my my opinion. I mean, it does help suppress the feelings that some some pro- problematic reviewers might get where they just want to red light everything, you know. But I think it's that we're kind of attacking the problem the wrong way by just lint all the things. You're arguing it's fundamentally more complicated. I would agree with you. I don't think we give people enough time to review. And I think because people don't have enough time to allotted sort of to review, they they can't sit there for a really long time on a code review and be like, huh, I can see why you did it this way. And I really want to do it this other way. But you know what? This is working and it makes sense and it isn't bad. I just didn't like this way, right? And that's okay. And I'm going to thumbs up your your thing because you did a good job the way that you tried to implement it. So I, I think kind of like if we kind of go back to the from the perspective of like, what advice would you give to junior developers, right? So I think one is, hey, if your team has linting standards, like use them, like do the effort. Like that's not trivial to like set up ESLint or RuboCop or whatever in your code editor to like catch those things, right? Because like that's the thing you don't want is to have that stuff fail in CI or get redlined by someone as a comment. But I'd say on the other side is like, if you if it is a team that that's the practice, right? Where people are redlining things because of linting, or if you look at other people's PRs, people are co- constantly disagreeing in PRs, and there's a lot of chatter. Then be like, oh, but I'm going to face the same thing too. Like, don't take it personally, right? But at the same time, I think I, I agree that like from a, from a more experienced developer's perspective, like if you're used to that culture, or even if it's not linting, it's just sort of hey, people are always debating about approaches to things in PRs. Uh, recognize that a new developer has a much higher level of intimidation, and that you might want to put a quick comment in there being like, hey, by the way, like you did a good job. Like you have not failed. I'm not mad at you, right? Like this is just kind of part of the way that we do development here. And, you know, we like to debate and discuss things in, in sort of PR comments. So that can go a whole a really, really far away. I mean, this I think we've already talked about it's like the biggest thing that that if you have people that are able and willing and know the stuff that can cause them to fail is they're just uh, especially in a remote culture, they may have less interaction synchronously with people that can give them those soft touch points of like, hey, you're doing a good job. You're okay. Like you belong here, that kind of thing, right? And they can just be terrified by seeing what you can read a lot of PR comments really loudly in your head versus like probably the the sort of sane, reasonable way that that person meant them to be written and, and read in, in, in someone else's mind. Yeah, you can read my response 
responses to your PR comments loudly in your head, and you're not wrong. <laughs> the one thing that I really like about this, because just going back to the right now, worry later. So I've been lately coaching people on how to start podcasts. Just quick plug for podcastbootcamp.io. Anyway, the the deal, one thing that I get brought up all the time is, well, I'm newish and I just don't know if people will listen to me talk about code because I'm not as experienced as they are. And my answer to them is essentially this, right? Because what I what I'm telling them is, look, so you what you do is in your first couple of episodes you tell them, "I am a new developer." This is where I'm at. This is what my experience is. This is what I'm trying to learn. And this is how I'm going to move forward with this podcast. And the thing is, is from there, the people who are interested will opt in and the people who aren't won't. But the point for the new developer is, is if they hire you and they know that you're new, this is your first job, you've never really written code professionally before, they can temper their expectations accordingly. And so you don't have anything to lose whatsoever by writing the code other than confirming that you're kind of new at it. And what it does is it really puts something concrete in front of people so that they can help you grow and so that you can get the feedback you need. And and that's the real power with this. Yeah, there are horror stories for code reviews. And some people are going to be jerks because you're new in some places. It, it happens. But the reality is, is the only way you're going to move up is if you're actually writing code and getting the kind of feedback you need in order to grow. And then if you're not in a very nurturing place, then figure something out. Go somewhere else. We'll make a friend in the community and see if they're hiring over there. You know, find a champion for your stuff and then just go talk to them. I mean, there are a lot of options that you have. But if you're not writing code, you're going to miss a bunch of stuff. And the other thing is, is yeah, everybody has tempered expectations anyway, if you're new. Or they should. <laughs> yeah. Just a, a quick note on on what you're saying, Chuck, on you know advice for juniors that if you're not... If you feel bogged down at your current role, the, there's a huge community out there. And I mean, thankfully, the world is kind of opening back up. But like, there's plenty of meetups, you know, conferences. There are so many community gatherings where you, you should go and experience what other people are facing because it's very easy to see you know, the same people like yourself in these community events that are available. And I mean, there are, there are plenty online too, uh, virtually. So maybe I'll make that one of my picks today, but uh, I definitely recommend, you know, if you're up, up and coming and learning, definitely get out there. Even if you are happy with your current role. Yeah, I can't emphasize that enough. Go out, join the users groups, get involved, find online groups, join up, ask questions. Yeah, there's so much there. Cool. Do we want to try tip three? Yeah. All right. So this one, this one, I'm curious. So this one, some people might disagree with. So the tip is go deep, not wide. And so the advice is when you're starting out. So the preface to this is I've noticed a lot of boot camps will sort of try to teach you because that's where junior developers come from. A number of them, at least, uh, they'll teach a lot of things. They'll teach them for a few weeks at a time. So like you'll learn iOS development for two weeks, and you'll learn Python for three weeks, and you'll learn front end for three weeks, and then at the end of it, like you've kind of got the marketing spiel, like I know a bunch of things, but you actually don't know any one of them to be supremely productive. Even sometimes the front end boot camps, like they will focus again on different frameworks, etc. And so the advice is once you get your first job inside of that company, like you're not, you're going to be pretty low in your experience across the board. Pick the one thing that you really like and you're actually really good at. Could be DevOps, could be front end styling, could be whatever, where you can see you can build a niche and just initially really focus on being productive and good in that area. Because one, you'll get credibility with your teammates so that you can actually 
be given a task and execute it sufficiently well. You become sort of a knowledge center in a particular area. And sometimes you can even help the team out because you can focus an area, maybe they're weak. Maybe you have a bunch of backend developers who are building a thing and they're not really good at styling and like you're going to take over the CSS and organize it really well and know everything about it. But also like you get confidence, they get confidence in you. Once your your foot's in the door, I mean, you will learn everything else by osmosis. You will be required to you know, fix bugs, build features, whatever that'll take you around the block over time. But if you try to learn everything or try to be like, I'll do everything all at once, you're, it's just going to be a much lower chance of success, right? Like you will learn things over time. So the the advice is essentially find a thing at the get-go and, and be explicit about this. Like ask your team lead and be like, hey, I want to try this approach. If that's okay with you, what area, like here's areas that I'm really interested in would, would be specializing in one of these be really valuable to the team. And usually there's always an area, right? And if you can find that overlap in the Venn diagram and focus on that, you can have a, a much higher you know, chance of success overall. Because yeah, then after that, once you're kind of like, you feel settled, you can learn everything you want, right? You, you now got your base of expertise to kind of be contributing to the team instead of just being in constant training mode. Yeah, I'll tell you. So the first job I got, it was because I had a deep set of uh, sort of DevOps ops experience. Right. They, they didn't hire me. They hired me because they needed a Rails developer. And I had been doing that on the side at my previous job. But most of my experience had been troubleshooting and setting up servers. And so that's why they hired me. They hired me to be good at that. Right. Uh, another job I got, it was the same thing. They wanted to set up CICD. They wanted to set up an internal Git server. They wanted to set up a handful of other things. And I had passable programming skills. I had like two or three years worth of experience at that point. But they hired me because they wanted the other stuff. And so this this really rings true, at least for me, with my experience. Yeah, now in other jobs, they just hired me because they needed somebody to write code. But yeah, in a couple of instances, I got the job I wanted over other people that seemed to have more experience because I had particular experience in the area that they needed help with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've just I've found almost everyone, and I think what's cool is you can even ask, you know, if you're a junior developer, like ask for the backstories of the other senior developers. I think you'll hear a lot of that, which is like, well, I started here. Uh, you know, my wife, you know, started in design, and she was like frustrated she couldn't get the design, the, the actual product to look like her designs. So the developers, and she learned HTML and CSS to code the design, and then she learned from there. So like, she got her foot in the door, and you'll always be learning and always expanding from there. But I think it's sort of like to recognize it's okay not to be the jack of all trades. And I think if you're a senior developer uh, trying to support a junior developer and it's like, you know, they're pretty green in every area, figure out like where's that overlap between the thing the team needs and the thing that they're interested in and give them the space and give them the right tickets, give them the right feature set to focus in that area and get good at it because they'll build confidence. They'll be valuable to you as a team because they can contribute and that buys them the time, right? To then learn all the other stuff that they need to learn to be a, a kind of a full, a fully fledged developer right like a fully baked developer are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before then it's time to work smarter with raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software and what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it right down to the line of code made by developers for developers raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit Raygun.com to resolve issues faster and deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. Do you think there's a danger that the area 
the junior developer will be directed into will be an area that no one wants to work on. And that's why it's the pain point. So they will actually be directed in that scenario towards something truly terrible. Like so I th- React or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> I've, said, I've said enough on this show about I'm deliberately keeping it vague, but you all know what I'm thinking of. You know exactly what I'm thinking of when I talk about the awful the awful part of a project that no one wants to learn about or touch or even think about, even look at. Yeah, there's usually two factors there, right? One, it's uh, people just don't like working on that. So an example, like I've got a bunch of backend developers, but they have to build a UI and they really all hate the UI. There's nothing wrong with the UI. They just don't want to work on it because they don't find it interesting. And then there's, we have a UI and we all hate working on it because we screwed it up. And then it's really, really painful to work in. And that's probably there's probably going to be a mix of those two. I still think it's a good idea because if you have uh, like a, a, a messy kind of mix, the answer realistically is it's still going to be easier for that that new person to focus in a singular area than to focus on multiple, even if it's sort of a messy part of the code. And you're also going to get a lot more like, hey, I'm working on this thing. And people will be like, thank goodness someone's working on it. Like you get a lot of credibility with the team. So <laughs> there's probably exceptions to that. I still think it's it's the the generally still holds true and probably for me, at least 90% of cases, but other people may differ on that. I think one problem about tip three, about going not going deep and going wide is that you could find yourself as a career junior because you've never really learned the skill set to move up in your career and other people who may seem to be not as knowledgeable as you because they don't know Xcode, Swift, they don't know Kotlin and Ruby and Python and C and Go and Rust and all this other stuff. So you hold yourself at a higher value, but you're still stuck in a junior position. Whereas your peers are excelling above you because they have focused on, one, what the company needs, but then also in a certain area that makes them a better position or a better candidate for a job. So there's nothing wrong with learning a bunch of different technologies and stuff because it can help you to go back to where you are focusing on going deep in with other kind of ideas, whether it is picking up uh, a functional language just for fun and stuff, but then going back to Ruby and seeing what you can bring into that language and your applications. Yeah. Yep. I want to chime in because I I actually completely disagree with you, Dave. Um, and the reason <laughs> is so there are two things, right? Because I think I think you're right in the sense that if you go deep on things that aren't going anywhere, it's harder to make your career go the place you want it to go. But my, my I also feel like people should take control of their career, right? So if you're realizing, hey, look, they've pushed me off, and I'm doing Svelte. If you haven't heard of Svelte, it's kind of cool, but it's not widely used yet. I'm over here doing Svelte on the front end, and I just whatever or stimulus maybe, right? Which is popular-ish with Rails, but not so popular-ish anywhere else that I've seen. So what what do you do, right? You, you decide, well, Svelte isn't getting me anywhere. I don't want to do Svelte anymore. And then you go talk to your boss and you say, look, this is where I want to end up. Writing Svelte isn't going to get me there anymore. And yeah, it's svelte.dev. It's spelled funny. You're welcome. Anyway, this isn't getting me where I want to go, boss. 
where I want to end up is I want to be uh, mini Dave, right? I want to do exactly what Dave does. What he does, it looks like fun. It looks like the kind of career I want to have. looks like it's going to take me in that direction. And so I want to move over to where I'm doing more Rails, uh, more Rails way approach stuff. You know, I want to work more closely with him because it's taking me in that direction. And then if they tell you, no, go find another job, right? And so it's up to you to take control. Now, when you're brand new, you're going to learn stuff no matter where they park you, okay? So if they park you over there using Svelte, learn Svelte. You're going to learn how to code. You're going to learn JavaScript. You're going to learn a whole bunch of architectural lessons. Yeah, not all of them are going to apply to Rails. But the thing is, is after you've been there for a while, if you realize that that's not the direction you want to go, that's when you can actually pull the ripcord and say, I want to be somewhere else. And so for the early dev, yeah, go deep on stuff that's going to make a major difference for your team. But yeah, I agree with you, Dave. Like when you're two, three, four years in, that's when your advice really, I think, kicks into gear, right? Where then you're going, you know what? I've been working on this this dead end stuff for two years. It's not getting me anywhere. I want to wind up over in this other place. And that's when you can deviate and go, all right, how do I apply what I've learned over here to the stuff that's going to get me where I want to go? Yeah. Keep in mind, Chuck, you're talking to someone, me, who introduced Ruby into a .NET company. So I was going against the grain of the company for many years and no one wanted to deal with me or the products that I was creating. So I was on very limited resources. So I think early, early on, like 12 years ago, I was in that situation where I did want to move up, but I wasn't willing to work in the .NET mess that they were working in. So I just kind of kept at it. And eventually, you know, by luck have it, our company got acquired by a more rail shop. And, you know, things really kind of took a turn there. But the point is, you don't have to be an expert or try to know a bit about every language out there to be a good developer. You should focus in and hone in on what is going to advance my career. Mm -hmm. If I'm learning Kotlin, but have no desire to be a Android developer, then is that really helping me out that much? Yeah, my point is is that if you learn Kotlin and you're not interested in being uh, an Android dev, you're still going to pick up a ton of stuff early on that's going to help you out later. And you can turn that into, you know, I never really did want to be a Kotlin dev. And I see that you have a spot open for me to do more Rails. Let me move. Well, also, like if you've done a really great job of what they have given you and you're you're kicking ass there, like you now have the credibility to say, like, we want to keep this person. This person's doing great. Like they and they're now giving me the feedback, let's say as a manager, that they want to work on something else. I'll arrange that versus someone who hasn't really made themselves as valuable to the team because they haven't really found a base of expertise. You might get people around you not bending as far backward to find a way to keep you happy, right? If you if you haven't kind of proven yourself over the long run. And yeah, I, I think I I agree with Dave, but definitely that the tip was kind of meant to be just for up to a year, right? So if you're definitely working on stuff you find less interesting for multiple years, I totally agree that I think you want to find a new place to work or definitely articulate that and make sure that you you find a place where you're going to be happy. So one thing, one thing I think everybody should know too is once you are far along enough in your career, like say you hit the three year marker, moving technologies is 
becomes much more flexible. Like if you're working, you've been working in Ruby and Rails that whole time. If you decided Kotlin is more of your speed, you know there are people that will hire you because you have a foundation and you know how Git works. You know how a lot of software is. There are a lot of ubiquitous parts of software, so you already have a foundation, and it's not the end of the world to be stuck in whatever you've gone deep on. Yeah, I think a lot of people I talk to juniors like all the time who literally haven't landed their first job and they're like freaking out and they're like, well, I I was doing JavaScript because that's what I learned. And then I started doing Rails and now I'm doing something else. And I'm like, every single time, the one thing that I tell them is just pick one. It doesn't matter if it's the wrong... If you think it's a dead end or if the next guy you talk to is a dead end, I don't care if you pick Rails. doesn't matter. You just got to stop flitting back and forth between them because what happens is that you go into that first job and you can't demonstrate your skills on any of those things. And that's what people care about. Like They don't care that you have the potential to do all these things. What they care about is what you can prove. And and that it gets harder and harder the more things that you try and pick up. And... And like Valentino said, it gets way easier to pick extra technologies up later like than it does at the beginning. At the beginning, you you literally are... You talk to one guy and he's like, well, this is how you should code. And you talk to the next guy and he's telling you something totally different. And you don't know enough of the jargon. You don't, you, you don't have... You haven't been coding for years. So it's hard to translate all those things or understand that maybe in one language, that's totally okay. And in another language, that's not cool, right? So... Yeah, it just just pick something. It, it's okay to be in a dead end, a quote unquote dead end for a year. Like it doesn't hurt you at all. If you can land a job in something, like cool, just go get it, and then then switch after you've done that job because people will see like we like I think we do all agree on at least this much, right? You're a whole lot more valuable like when you have demonstrable experience, and people will literally hire you just because you have two to three years of experience. Your inbox will be flooded with so many messages that you were just filtering out and ignoring all the recruiters. Don't worry, it'll happen to you too. So just as a note, and that like I was thinking about this the other day, it's like there's not that many industries where there's a whole nother industry to find people for the first industry. And I was like, I remember <laughs> kind of coming out of school being like, I want to find all the careers. I want to go to like the recruiters and be like, what industries do you recruit for? Because like that is the industry where someone especially is willing to pay you. It's so hard to find people, they're willing to pay you to find people. And that's that means you know there's enough of a, a demand supply mismatch there that it makes sense for me to learn. So that was like yeah, so you like you're talking hard sciences, software engineering, things like that are, are sort of the places to be. Uh, do you guys want to do tip four? I don't know if we're running long on time. Uh, tip five, we might end up skipping. Tip five is really short, but tip four, tip four could generate some discussion. So tip four is don't put your teammates on a pedestal. So, so the preface for this one is sometimes I've had a case where I've seen a junior developer. They do go, they kind of do their the right thing. Uh, they put in some work, they get stuck, they ask a senior developer for help. And the senior developer sort of sitting there and they're actually thinking through the architecture as well. They're thinking, oh, we could do this. We could do that. Oh, no, we should do We should fix this here. We should refactor that and then do this other thing and do it this way. And then they're like, okay, great. And then they go off and start working on it. And it's it's like kind of clumsy and it's not exactly working the way they thought. There's some edge cases we didn't think of or whatever else. But they're going like, but a senior developer told me to do it this way. So like, I have to, I have to do it this way, right? Like I, I'm going to look like an, a jerk coming back I can be like, I don't think this is working the way you think. And so they'll, they'll sort of like hack it together, force sort of like the, the square peg into the round hole. And then they'll have a PR that's just hacky and clumsy and it'll get marked up. And then they're like face in palm, you know, hand in 
face poet, whatever, where they're like, I did what you said and I'm still like, this still sucks, right? So the answer really is that like, don't put your senior developers in the pedestal. They make mistakes just like you do. In fact, you probably have, you're probably witnessing tons of arguments between the senior developers on your team about things, right? So they're, don't not listen to them, but they're sort of like a coach, right? Like, hey, take the thing, try it. And if you're facing friction that clearly seems unexpected, right? Like, bring that up. Like, go back and be like, hey, I'm trying what you said, but I'm here's where I'm hitting some roadblocks. Like, and you might have them be like, oh, you know what? Now that I think of it, that's not going to work. We should try it some other way. Uh, don't just take whatever they say as gospel, right? Like, be respectful and and try it first. Uh, but just recognize they're also fallible. You know, like there's there's a reason why this is not a straight input output process. It's a creative industry, and that they're making they're sort of kind of figuring it out as they go, just like you are. And if you come from that perspective, then you know you won't end up with these circumstances where you're batting between. I mean, sometimes I've even seen a PR go up and two different senior developers are commenting on some a junior developer's PR arguing over something, right? So respect sort of like a respect your elders but don't take what they say as gospel <laughs> right they're an input they're they're a support they're not really they're not like gods in heaven who just know all the answers kind of thing so much just yeah it's, just flip it's and funny. do it and then and then back off when when the argument happens right also right. my apologies to everyone that I've ever done that to because I've done it to people as well. <laughs> I'm completely I'm just, guiltless but <laughs> <laughs> I, you know yeah it, it happens all the time you're just you think that it's a really great idea and especially I think to kind of speak on behalf of senior developers so pardon me if for all those of you that have never done this of course but you know sometimes you think that an idea is really awesome and it, it, you go to implement it and it turns out to not be good so of course it happens when you know a senior is thinks an idea is really awesome and the junior goes and then tries to implement it and it just doesn't work out. And yeah. Uh, so from the senior side, we also have to make sure that we're empathetic and sensitive to that too. Yeah. Here's a useless statistic for you. If you were to tally up all the mistakes that a junior has made in their career, I guarantee you it is less than the number of mistakes if you were to tally up that a senior has made. So as a junior... No, don't worry about it. You're going to make mistakes. But just think, your senior guy that you're looking up to has made so many more than you. Well, what's funny too is that I've actually had to eat humble pie where I sat down and I designed something out with the junior dev. And then, you know, I was, for whatever reason, unreachable for two days. Come back, they've delivered a solution. And I look at the solution and it's totally different from what we did. And they're apologizing to me. I didn't do it your way because it wasn't working. So I went and did it this other way. And I'm looking at what they did and I'm going, this is way better than what I was going to do. The other thing that's interesting too is that this happens at all levels. So um, one of the podcasts I listen to is Marketing Secrets by Russell Brunson. And he's like one of the primo marketing guys, right? And so he was doing an episode about two weeks ago that he put out and he basically said, yeah, we're doing this webinar for this launch and it's going to be awesome and blah, 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 blah. And I actually remember thinking to myself when I heard it, I am so tired of hearing about how he knocked it out of the park and made another $2 million by doing a stupid webinar, right? The next episode was, well, the webinar bombed. Now what? So it happens to everybody at every level. Okay. So just, just keep in mind that, yeah, the, the people at the top, they're just making more sophisticated mistakes. That's a good way to put it. I like that. I've never made any mistakes. I don't know what you're talking about. And quite honestly, I'm, I'm against putting other 
developers on the pedestal. So I agree with that. Apart from me, I should be on the pedestal. And you don't want to be on the pedestal. Else, it's hard to get down when you have to. Everyone use the else should. It's. It's. I, I never look down, Chuck. Never look down. The. I don't know. I agree with this idea that senior developers make just as many mistakes as junior ones. I think they make they make bigger mistakes because mm-hmm. they're doing bigger things. But you're not gonna. Oh, what did I do the other day? I I was playing with the hash dot new. You know the hash dot new, and uh, you provide a default value. And I thought, oh, I want it to return an array as default value. Are you familiar with this trap? So you do the Ruby, you do the hash dot new, and you're in your curly brackets, you put an empty array that returns that object persists so when you f- if you create that default array then the next time you go and create a new default it'll have whatever's in the old one yeah because it's the same underlying object oh this is such <laughs> this is such a common error that in the ruby docs it explicitly calls out this on the page in the documentation saying do not do this because it will just add the contents of the previous array or just be the same array every time you're missing a hash key. And I was there for, I'm not even going to admit how long I was there for <laughs> trying to do this do this uh, thing. So yeah, different different kinds of mistakes and different kinds of bugs, definitely. I think the, the trouble is, what, you're, I, what I feel you're getting at with this point, point four, is almost a kind of project point. Like kind of, is this a good idea at all to implement this? Is that the kind of thing we're talking about here? I guess the way I was trying to get at it would be if if you're given advice from someone else, uh, so one, don't not try it. But if it's painful and it's not working, it is your responsibility as a junior developer to explain that upwards, right? Like that's a responsibility. It's not even an option, right? To be like, hey, I'm trying this. Am I doing it wrong? Is it not working? Versus hacking it in there because you think it would be, you know, disrespectful or you're the junior developer. Like this is their code base. You're just sort of the visitor, right? Like, no, this is your code base as well. If it's painful to you, it could even be painful to the next person coming after you. And you're responsible as a good developer is to to have the sort of confidence, you know, remember it's, it's sort of like you're a teammate, right? Like they're not really, there's, you can say superior or whatever, but like they're really your teammate, right? Your job is for your teammate. So kind of recognizing as a junior developer to, to when you face friction, talk about it. Right. And this kind of ties into all the other stuff we talked about of like the imposter syndrome of like, oh, maybe I'm just not implementing correctly. But like, I found it's about half and half, <laughs> especially because like, as you point out, like, I'll think of an idea. And I think like, even if I was doing this particular ticket myself, like, I would think of it an idea and I'd experiment with an approach. And then I have to go, go off and be like, oh, it didn't work. Let me try again. Right. But when I'm giving that advice to someone else, I always try to tell them like, hey, this is an idea. I want you to try this and come back to me tomorrow. And I want you to I, I want you to tell me how it's going. Oh, it's you're making progress, right? And sometimes that helps me make sure because otherwise they'll be like, can I tell him that this idea sucks, right? Like I want to make it easy for the junior developers that's a more senior developer to, t- to give me that feedback, right? So that's really what it was kind of more focused on was sort of that dynamic uh, of the perception of the discrepancy and sort of you know importance or or the the allowance to speak up between a junior and senior developer and that it is your job to to speak up not to argue but to say this is is this really working are we really like here let me show you what I'm trying is this actually what we really want to try you know if it if it seems really really painful it is important to try it first yeah you make a great point there too bringing things up sooner or just in general (laughs) because i mean you never know who else is having the same problem and i mean voicing any issue you have is always going to be better for the the bigger group because 
even if people are more experienced, they they are still like we've been saying having problems. You know, they experience they everybody makes mistakes, and you never know if something that you know you're working on affects somebody else. That oh, okay, now it comes to light because you've brought it up, and other people experience the same thing where they were just kind of quietly working through it anyway and pushing it aside and working around it. I've worked with people you know, far less experienced than me that have made a great point. And I was even struggling with it as well. And, you know, because they brought it up, it started a discussion and a, a solution started to get worked on. I've also found at times, like if, if you have a sufficiently uh, sophisticated code base, like there were, th- there was an implementation approach that was suboptimal, but now we're just used to it and we don't have time to change it. And so when I'm telling someone else how to do it, I'm giving them the suboptimal approach because that's how we've always done it. And they're like, yeah, this is really painful. And I'm like, yeah, I guess I just got used to the pain. Like I just got used to how much, how, how <laughs> shitty it was. And, and, uh, and maybe the, you know, like, I even think it's okay to say like, well, I agree with you. It is painful and we don't have time to fix it right now. But I would much rather have that be explicit than someone sort of suffering in silence being like, is this like, am I just not understanding this? So it's like, this no, this is painful for everyone, but we should fix it. We just can't right now. That's fine. But transparency is always like the, the, the most important part, right? Communication. One last bit of this too is sometimes, and, and I've worked with, I can't tell you how many people that have this particular problem. They are brilliant coders and they'll look at a problem and they will intuitively grasp what has to happen in order for that to uh, go off without a hitch. And they are awful at communicating it, right? And so they'll come in and they'll say, hey, this is the solution. Just go X and Y and Z and you'll get there. Well, you hear X, Y, and Z, but you think X means W, right? Because X and W are real close. And so you go off and you do kind of this hybrid X, W thing and you get stuck, right? Because that isn't going to work. And so that's the other thing is, is if you're putting them on this pedestal and you're not really giving them, giving it a chance to say, hey, look, you know, this just really isn't working. What you may find out is, hey, the solution's good, but they didn't explain it well at all. And so as you get in and they see something concrete, they go, oh no, what I meant was this needs to go here and this needs to go here and you don't need any of this. And you get the clarity that you need. And if you're afraid to ask or you're thinking you're going to look dumb in front of them, going back to this imposter syndrome stuff, you're never going to get there. And the, if you have somebody that's really talented, you really do have an opportunity to learn. And you might you might miss some of that opportunity if you're not willing to ask the questions and come at it from more of a team standpoint. Someone earlier mentioned draft PRs. And, and I think that's a really helpful practice here, which is to say, okay, I know you're really busy. You gave me an approach. I'm supposed to go off and code it. But maybe it's like reasonable for me to spend two days on it. And I'm going to work on it for two days. And I'm going to put up what I have, right? And then like ping you to be like, can you take a quick glance at this? Am I on the right track? Like just that can solve... I, I think a lot of what you were talking about, Chuck, in terms of, hey, am I, am, did I interpret you correctly? Right? Like, am I on the right track? Um, and that'll be usually pretty obvious to a sufficiently sort of experienced developer. It's like, oh, yeah, I see what you're doing, what I told you to do. It was like, no, no, that's not at all what I was saying. Right. And so a lot of this is sort of like we talk about, you know, deployment cycles, right? In terms of code, this is almost like your mini internal deployment cycle <laughs> of like your brains and your editor and your code of like how, what's the feedback loop? 
of how quickly you're getting feedback across the team that are we on track. I think there's a lot of parallels there. That's like the more frequently you deploy, the better you are generally. The more frequently you have those touch points that are not just verbal, but it's like, hey, take a quick look at this. Yep, five minutes, you're on track, keep going. You know, can save hours and hours of, of time later and arguments, save a lot of arguments later too. Yeah. One last thing I just want to throw out is a lot of times people will practice like agile retrospectives or other things. And you do need to be able to call out your teammates if something's not working, right? And and I've done this. I did it when I was a new developer too, because we all kind of gave each other permission to call somebody out and say, hey, when you do this, it throws the whole team out of whack. Or when you behave this way, it, you know, it causes all of these problems. And if you can't do that, then wherever you're working is going to be less fun to work at. And so you need to be able to do that kind of a thing too, and just communicate to somebody, you know, you're kind of a jerk. And when you do this, it causes these issues. Yep. Yeah, sometimes I think, and, and I think there, if you're reasonably afraid to bring that up in retrospective, like, you know, usually you'll have a manager, right? Who's overseeing all the developers. You should at least be able to talk about that kind of stuff with right. them and be like, and, and they can handle that privately. And, and that can be a really non-scary way to handle that kind of thing. All right, tip number five. So this one is really kind of an outlier because it's not really a philosophical point. This is just a specific development tactic that I have found helps a lot of junior developers. And so the tip is called pseudocode is your friend. So most senior developers, they can kind of think about the logic and the syntax at the same time, right? So they can kind of start spitting stuff out. I just found this thing where a lot of junior developers, again, your your mind is working over time because you're learning a bunch of new stuff, that it's, it's actually harder to do both at the same time because the syntax is still kind of new. So like a recommendation I've given a lot of people is write pseudocode first. If you're like, all right, I need to write this this class and it's got to have these things and do X, Y, and Z. Like, don't think about like, all right, def, whatever. First, just write a bunch of comments explaining it to yourself, right? And then you're like reading it through. It's like, oh, I see how that logically makes sense. Now turn your mind to syntax mode and be like, okay, well, I need to write like an initialize method. I need to have these init- these instance variables, whatever. And now you're just translating essentially the, the sort of human thought, right? How the code should work, the explanation into the code. And so it's kind of an outlier because again, it's very, very tactical. But that being said, I, I think uh, it can be really helpful to a lot of people because it helps that that overwhelm that that a newer developer can feel because they're both wrangling how to do it and what to do, and then also the syntax of how to express it. Especially if you're doing a lot of data wrangling, right, and manipulation, that's where you have like your filters and your maps and all that kind of stuff, or eaches, I guess, in Ruby. I'm thinking of JavaScript. So yeah, that's that's something I found really helpful that I did a lot early. You know, the first time I learned to code anything was actually like in almost middle school and in those classes. And that's how our teacher made us work. It was like you had to write out on paper comments <laughs> about the code and then you could actually type up on the computer the actual syntax. And I kind of have kept with it. And it, I think it's really been helpful to me over the years whenever I get sort of venture off into a new new programming land. I remember getting dinged for that in math class, not showing my work. And I, I hated it then and I still hate it. <laughs> well, I don't think you need to show anyone else your code. But that being said, <laughs> uh, you know, we talked about getting a feedback from from sort of a senior developer. Like you might be able to write those comments really quickly, explaining what you're thinking of doing, and having, and then have sending that to somebody else, and they can probably review that much more quickly than a whole bunch of code. So that again can also help with the feedback loop of being like, all right, here's like if you're especially writing down, here's what I think I'm going to do. I'm going to write this service or this class or whatever with these methods on it. Sort of like your interface and signatures, and it's going to do this. They're like, yeah, that's seems about right, then then you have a really good foundation. You're much more likely to be in line with whatever the senior developer was kind of trying to explain to you if they think that that explanation makes sense. Yeah, I definitely don't want to drag on it, right? Like it's it's another technique and sort of the bag of communicating really well. 
I, I mean, personally, I'm actually a really big fan of like draft PRs, right? I, I still do them to my fellow developers who are also senior to say, Hey, I know that we talked about this the other day and this is sort of what we agreed to. Here's what I got. Sometimes my fellow developers just kind of like ignore them and like never give me feedback. And that's not awesome. But we're having like a really big discussion about something and it was kind of unclear. And we were trying to decide like maybe what way we were going to go on a particular thing. Like that's even useful farther down in your career. And, and I can absolutely, it doesn't really, it's not really a thing for me, but I know that there are people who still use uh, pseudocode as well later on in their career. So a lot of these things stick for a long time. Do you use just pseudocode or do you also draw diagrams? like the classic computer science. Remember one of the diamonds? I don't know if, 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 if everyone you hears know? it. That. Yeah, that was like the kind of cool thing in the late 90s was everything was, was done in a diagram and yeah. it always had some you kind of diamond diagrams. in it. Yeah, Sweet. And another was, language to learn. Perfect. Yeah. And, I, I, I and we never, should learn Cucumber too while we're at it. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that basically ended up as call center scripts really is, is where that, that method of programming has ended up is, uh, is if you have worked in a call center, that's, that's where that branch of computer science ended up is, uh, how to do telemarketing. <laughs> but uh, the reason I ask is I do this. I do exactly what you said. I imagine it's because we're from the kind of same era of, uh, possibly mid nineties programming where I'd stub out the comment. If I was like, oh, how do I write this? Comment, you know, create a new thing. Comment, do a little loop here. Co- yeah, comment, write an auto database, and you go through and fill it in, don't you? That's how I do it. But for certain things, that doesn't work very well because the next step of that, maybe you're working across three or four files, and suddenly you're kind of stubbing out across files, and it kind of works well going down the page, but it doesn't work going well across it. And they have these systems now for game programming, where, where you, I don't know if you've played the Unity engine, but Unity's got this little kind of um, uh, visual scripting thing. Have you seen this? This is where you do code by dragging the boxes around and it says rotate this and uh, instead of typing it in you drag it around but what you do is you can see where the loops are you can see where the different objects are drawn in and then you can actually double click on it and write the code in that and it's gone off and it's put it in the class file over there i do that i do that but on paper because I don't have an amazing Ruby visual programming environment where all the lines and the boxes are connected. But when you're pseudocoding, do you draw stuff or is it all just, you know, uh, comments in a text file? I do comments in a text file, but that's not because I think the diagramming wouldn't be helpful at times. I think it's because I haven't found a sufficiently frictionless tool to do that. If I'm usually having to think in that way or like uh, I haven't fully grokked how all the pieces are going to fit together, I, I basically scribble on actual physical paper and uh, it, it does tend to be. Yeah, it tend to be really, really spon- spontaneous. You both aged about 20 years in my head when you said you write it on actual paper. Here's the funny <laughs> thing for me, though. I, I write it on paper, but it's not legible. Like, it's really like, it's almost like scribbles where it looks like gibberish. And it's it's purely like my mind. Like, I'll be like, well, there's just a box here of things in my head. I know what it is for that moment. I only need it for five minutes till I figure it out. And I throw the paper away. So it's very There's only one copy of that parser and it's in your head. <laughs> Whiteboards, basically, whiteboards are amazing for that. Yeah, white. Yeah, that's true. There's so much value in erasing something and and starting new after you've thought about it too. I make sure to take my paper and light it on fire every time because obviously you know you don't want that leaking out to the world. 
field. So I uh, I, feel I, I write now. pseudocode. Thank you. I actually do write in pseudocode, Luke. Um, it's called Ruby. It it looks the exact same. <laughs> uh, just with underscores. I got it. I so I I literally feel like I will just like write like kind of like bogus Ruby or whatever. Sometimes like if for a section and then like fix it later. Because it just, I don't know, it reads so much like English that it's pretty much the same thing as writing pseudocode. So like, it just kind of happens sometimes. But I don't this, really intentionally do it very often. This is a kind of the DSL of the future, much like the guy who invented the rock star programming language. So I would now be a rock star developer. You're going <laughs> to invent a Ruby DSL called pseudocode. I don't subscribe to top-down programming, but I like to write my code based on like how I want to use my APIs. So I like write my API like I'm like I want my API to look like this and then I make the classes that make that happen. So I mean and then sometimes I have to fix my API later because it just didn't work out the way that I thought it was gonna, but yeah. So you know, like that said though, the pseudocode lends itself that way to a certain degree, right? Because yep. effectively what you say is this is what I want to happen here. And so then what it is is I want this class to do this thing that come out of that. I wanted this to happen here. So you're not that far off, really. Not really, but I don't intentionally go and write intentional pseudocode. I just this is as far this is as close as it gets. But you're right. And that's the reason why I brought it up, because in some ways it's analogous to it. Mm-hmm. So so the tip in some ways is that because Ruby is that way and a lot of engineers are really smart where they can do exactly what you're saying. The the point of the, the tip was that if you're junior and just starting out, even though Ruby is fairly easy, you might not be at that level. So you might be working alongside people who don't do that. And that especially when you're starting out till you become till the syntax of whatever language you're in just becomes second nature. You're not even thinking about it anymore. You're just thinking about the business logic. I think it, it can be really helpful for junior developers to intentionally separate those out until the syntax becomes as second nature as it is probably to you and to not feel like, oh, well, this is how they do it. And therefore, I need to do it the same way. Uh, but they've been doing it a lot longer than you have. And so for you, it's probably more efficient to separate them out as a junior developer. It is language-based too, right? Like I, I've been doing JavaScript for a long time. I can't do that with JavaScript. <laughs> it's just well, different. It's a different language. One other thing just with all of this too is, you know, back to, hey, this is for people who are in their first job. You're mentioning syntax, but the other thing is, is in a lot of cases, it'll look like I'm just sitting down and making up the solution out of my head onto the screen, but I've done it dozens of times, right? And so me envisioning the solution is I'm going to do it just like I did it before, except with these changes. Copying it from memory, sort of. Yeah, more or less. Like the old school GitHub Copilot copying it from my own head. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds weird when you say it that way. (laughs) I I was sitting the other day and thinking that basically they just did an autocomplete for Stack Overflow because like most people, like they just saved the step of me Googling and copying from Stack Overflow and now they put it in my editor. But that's a different discussion. (laughs) Yeah. So those are the five tips. I I don't know if we want to kind of keep going on that or or, uh, yeah, that's all I got. I think I think that more or less covers it. I mean, there were a few other things that we kind of threw in on the side that I think are critically important. I just want to go back to participating in the in, in the community and going to users groups and stuff like that. I mean, the any place where you can go and level up your experience outside of work and get, give you a little bit more perspective is exceptionally valuable. But but within the context of work, I think you pretty much nailed it. I think another nice thing, especially for me when I was uh, joining and going to you know being really involved with the Atlanta Ruby meetup. Uh, and by the way, uh, Chuck, we met in 2015 at a RailsConf for like five minutes. That was really cool. You were handing out stickers. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm always but, handing uh, out stickers. Yeah, yeah, you think you're handing out stickers. But I think also like getting exposure to developers and necessarily not your immediate team in a work environment will also humanize them. And again, will will alleviate a lot of that fear where you'll kind of feel you might even hear or have conversations with the, about things, about things that necessarily, oh, my company sucks because of blah, blah, blah. But like you may not hear that on your team because people are trying to shit on each other, right? So like you, you'll get a, a much broader sense of the spectrum of kind of the developer experience by associating with people in, in sort of not just your immediate team and learn about the diversity of perspectives out there as well. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, one more thing, maybe from a meta perspective that we keep saying, even though I don't think we brought it up explicitly, but like the process of like getting a junior developer, like up and running is a bit of a team effort, right? Like from the more senior side of things, like you're trying to set people up to succeed and there are things that you can do. And some of them we talked about today that you can do to, you know, get your juniors to succeed. And on the, the flip side, like from a junior, like the, the I think the main points that we were trying to make today is like you kind of have a lot of agency in how your career goes. And I think most of these tips are like geared towards like here's the things that you can do to like convince people that you're valuable, convince people like that they should like help you. And also just kind of just proving yourself as you go and leveling yourself up. You know, it's not totally you, but if if you keep staying engaged, people are definitely way more. Even the even the seniors that are not very good at this are more uh, able to help you. I, yeah, I love point. to just the point of putting it within somebody's grasp to kind of take control. There are things you can do. You're not just sitting there waiting for people to kind of tip your head and pour it into your ear, you know, so you absorb the knowledge. It you can do stuff to make it work. Yeah, I think one of the things in the article was like you have to also recognize that you need to help people around you help you, right? Like they're not, they're not the, the thing if it was like, they may be really good engineers. They're really bad at helping junior developers. Like most people are, even I am. Right. And so like recognize that the thing you're engaging with them on is, is a thing that it's not that you're learning from them. They're also kind of probably not the best on average, right. At really sort of supporting and understanding and training up a junior developer. So you're kind of going through that process together and, and you have a lot of agency in how that process works out for, for you specifically. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Even my experience of being a, a new Rubyist is 15 years old now, <laughs> 16 years old. So yeah, there's going to be stuff that I don't get that you, you're going to need help with. I was just going to say, even if they are good, they still have bad days. And uh, you can get that bad PR review on one of their bad days. And so, yeah, it's always good to, to be super engaged in your own learning. Those are the days I need my pedestal. Anyway, let's go ahead and do some picks. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock mountain time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then 
We'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. Dave, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, sure. So my pick today is a program called ReCut. It allows you to basically trim out all of the white space or the white dead noise in a recording. And it works for both video and audio. And it has definitely shaved off about two hours a week of my recordings on Drift and Ruby. So it's definitely a time saver. I think it costs like 100 or 150 or something, but it is a really, really awesome thing. So if you do a lot of screencasting or anything like that, it can save you a lot of time. Very cool. It's like a power tool except for audio. All right, Luke, what are your picks? Well, I most well going to pick this pitfall for the uh, hash default values is uh, very well documented and revealing what not to do. And of course, uh, it's, it's what I did and I expect it's what everyone's done at some point. My other pick is a cartoon off Amazon, not for kids. I recommend adults on this one. And it is a called Invincible on Amazon. And it's a kind of superhero thing, but it's awfully good. And I highly recommend it. Awesome. Valentino, what are your picks? So I've been following along with uh, Gemma Isroff's uh, Ruby Garbage Collection series, which is really great. She has a book that she's writing called Ruby Garbage Collection in Under Two Hours. Uh, it's available for pre-order. I've got it pre-ordered. I'm, I'm looking forward to diving in to understand how the garbage collection works in, uh, in Ruby. So that's my first pick. Uh, the second one, kind of going along with code reviews and maybe how we can do them better. There is a site called refactoring.guru, and they basically house a ton of resources for design patterns and refactoring principles. It's a great reference guide. Now, usually, if you can make it harder for yourself to comment on a pull request, it usually leads to a better pull request. And if you have to force yourself to reference you know, some of these references for, oh, maybe this design pattern will work, maybe this will work better, sometimes it can help you as a senior realize maybe that's not the right way to apply it to what you're reviewing. Uh, so it's a great kind of bi-directional resource. Uh, definitely check it out. And then my last one is it's kind of a funny one from uh, one of the Ruby mailing lists from uh, Gerald Bauer's Punk Art Programming Challenge. It's really funny. He's made this Ruby program that generates pixelated characters. And he has a little challenge that he does where you can kind of make alterations on your own little characters. It looks like a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to trying that out as well. That sounds fun. All right, John, what are your picks? So uh, one comment first, I definitely thumbs thumbs up Valentino's uh, refactoring guru pick. It's in my bookmarks. I reference it pretty often. 
it's pretty awesome. It's a great reference for everybody. So before, when we were on the other other call link that was apparently not the right one, we were chatting a little bit about CSVs at the beginning, and and Luke brought up CSV pirates. Um, so I have an anti pick and a pick here or whatever. But uh, don't use CSV pirate. I mean, first of all, Sorry, if you really John, could you could you do this in a pirate voice while you're recommending? <laughs> yeah, it's not happening. I just don't have the skills. Sorry. So, I mean, look, if you're doing a new app and you're definitely really committed to the pirate speech and that's what you want to do, totally cool. Don't don't add it as the fifth CSV parser in your application, like an application that I had to work on. It certainly did not help the already confusing application. Uh, but if you are trying to pick something for parsing CSV, I definitely have been a huge fan of Smarter CSV for a really long time. Faster CSV was great, but now it's just part of Ruby Core, so it's bland, and everybody uses it anyway. So just check out Smarter CSV Pick. So I, I, I don't know. I use one of the two. If if I need something more heavy duty than what's than what Faster CSV gives me, then then we pull out the Smarter CSV Pick. I like making CSVs with with default Ruby or Faster CSV and reading them with Smarter CSV. So anyway. That's what I'll leave today. Awesome. I've got a couple of picks. The first one, I just want to remind everybody, Podcast Bootcamp, four weeks. We'll have you up and running with your own podcast, walk you through all the technical stuff, but also walk you through some of the imposter syndrome stuff. We give you a blueprint for the first five episodes that you're going to release to kind of set the stage for your show, figure out who your audience is, and give you another blueprint for how to grow your show. So that's at uh, podcastbootcamp.io. And then the other pick I have is a book that I read. It's called Tribe of Millionaires. And it's basically a book about who you surround yourself with, the mastermind groups and things like that. And it just kind of drove home a couple of things for me as far as, yeah, just how to think about some of that stuff. So anyway, those are my picks. Riaz, what are your picks? So I thought of two. They're both non-technical. So one's just kind of fun. I've really gotten into this guy named John Bellion recently. He's a, he's a musician. He's been around for a while, but I'm very picky with music. And I've just found that for some reason, I can actually listen to most of his stuff and get a lot of work done, which is very unusual because normally I like music without words when I'm working. So if you want to check him out, he's really great. Uh, the other one is a book called The Motivation Myth um, that I read about a month ago. And it's one of the few kind of books that's really stuck with me. It's, it's by a, a gentleman by the name of Jeff Hayden. And sort of the gist is about, you know, we kind of think we, we get ourselves psyched up to be motivated to do things. And it's actually just uh, sort of incremental progress that makes us really happy. And so just whatever it is, just keep doing it and you'll find that you get motivated about it <laughs> eventually. That's a really rough way to say what he's trying to explain. But yeah, it's just a book that's really stuck with me now that I read it several months ago and I'm still thinking about the concepts in it. So there must be something there. Awesome. If people want to connect with you, uh, how do they find you online? Probably the easiest way is a sort of a personal website I have. It's uh, riazv.me. So it's R-I-A-Z-V.me. And that has sort of links to all the social stuff, some stuff I've written, uh, talks I've given, all that kind of stuff. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up here. Thanks for coming. This was a fun chat and hopefully it helps get some people down the road a little further. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Yep. Till next time, folks. Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.